we see this mainly as an effort by the insurance industry to avoid taking hard consequences that science expects. It's about being able to have an understanding of our future and know that we're going to be able to control that and we can plan for thousands of years down the line than not be in a position where at the moment where we're worried about losing them within the next century. Let them hear! Are you angry yet? Welcome to the Lid is On at COP26 in Glasgow. It's me, Connor Lennon, with my colleague, Lara Quinones. Hello, Lara. Hello. Who is alive, but only just because you were nearly killed by a random cabinet falling down a little earlier. I wasn't in the office, but I understand it was quite dramatic. It, it was. Uh, we were where our colleague, Grace, she, she helps out with video. And we were just working in our computers, and suddenly I just see this huge cabinet coming towards me. So we're sitting in a room now with so-called walls, but they're paper thin. Yep. And I think someone leaned on the wall from the other side, didn't they? And the wall collapsed pretty somebody, much. And somebody was trying to open the locker that's on the other side. Oh, dear. And did it a little too hard. Anyway, you all survived, I'm glad. And the, the cabinet has been removed, so we don't have to worry about that, at least uh, between now and the rest of COP26. Today was finance day. And Mark Carney had a, um, a big announcement. He's the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action. And he said it was a watershed moment. So we'll be finding out a bit more about that. That was your big story of today. <laughs> My mission today was a tough one. I am going to try to make insurance interesting. Oh, wow. That's... I think I can do it. I, it you know, you be the judge. <laughs> but I, I think it's possible. Insurance, climate, it is very interesting. And I also grabbed a few words with world-famous architect Norman Foster on the roles of cities and design in tackling climate change, and we'll have a bit more on that later. Cities Day taking place next week. But first of all, let's start with Mark Carney, Lara. Yeah. This is uh, the big story of the day. As I said, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action Finance, and some huge figures were being bandied around, $130 trillion dollars. So let's um, hear Mark Carney on this watershed moment. A number of us were at Paris, historic agreement, two degrees stretched to one and a half degrees, and then disappointment. Uh, hopes dashed, countries uh, go home, don't implement the policies, uh, net zero plans of uh, companies were absolutely by uh, exception, and uh, in finance, candidly, uh, uh, these issues were viewed as issues of CSR, not a strategic imperative. Um, and I was in the room uh, two years ago in the General Assembly, I think you were there as well, presidents, prime ministers, dignitaries, business leaders, and Greta Thunberg rightly blasted everyone, words to the effect of, you've stolen my dreams and my childhood, and right here, right now, is where we draw the line. So here's where we draw the line, he said. The finance community is drawing the line. So, Lara, can you help me to break this down a little bit? What was he talking about? Well, when he says $130 trillion, it is capital and it's like portfolios that a lot of uh, these financial companies and banks are managing, which in the end is actual money. So what they're going to do is make sure that all these companies are going to invest it in green economy instead of fossil fuels. So he said something very interesting, which was, Companies that will have plans to reduce emissions will find capital for their companies, but those who don't, they won't. So that's basically it. Right. And this is not tomorrow, right? This is a, a pledge. It's a commitment. It's not happening overnight. No. It, but they've, the big point is, I mean, this it's GFAS, which sounds kind of cool in his Canadian accent. GFAS, <laughs> was it the Global 
finance. Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Thank you very much. Yes, <laughs> GFAS for short. So. This was announced earlier in the year, but the point is they finally secured those commitments. Yes, they secured those commitments, which they have to reduce, I mean, to net zero uh, for 2050, but they're doing interim commitments. They're like kind of voluntary company by company, but uh, to reach at least 20, I mean, 50% of the cut of these emissions by 2030, yeah. And of course, if that happened, that would be amazing because that would be more than enough cash to solve the problem but yes we'll, we'll hedge it slightly <laughs> by saying it's not there yet but it's still pretty impressive it is impressive commitment. to see these private companies actually uh, um, talking about this and, and we actually have a representative from Morgan Stanley and from actual Alliance the financial company uh, and, and they both seem very committed this wasn't the only financial announcement made today we're always awash with i won't ask you to give us a laundry list of all of them but (laughs) just give us some that caught your eye today oh well i know japan and australia had announced commitments to double their adaptation finance and and also uh u.s the u.s had done his largest commitment for adaptation money for development countries so yeah those were the big ones and also yesterday remember yesterday was forest day they also committed 12 billion for forest-related climate finance. Well, actually, I can barely remember what we were doing yesterday because it's just a blur now. I, it is. We don't sleep. Where are we now? Is it Wednesday? I'm not it sure is, entirely. Yeah. I yeah. can't remember when I arrived here or anything. <laughs> well, just to go back to climate finance, I mean, all these big picture things are great, but I also got a different take on what climate finance means. And this is from the humanitarian angle. I spoke to Garnet Lagunda. He's a climate finance expert at the UN's World Food Programme. Now, I only found out he was available a short while ago, like half an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, and I saw you running out the door. Well, he was right on the other end of the conference <laughs> site. And even getting to him was an adventure. So here's how I got on. Just made it now to Zone A, the action zone. This is where all of the media are, the real big broadcasters. They all have their own spots. You can see presenters getting ready to do their pieces to camera for the evening news. And I'm just going to look around now. He must be around here somewhere. Near Sky News, I was told. Let's have a look. Ah, here we go. Found him. We were not, you know, I've really been 24-7 driving around, you know. From, That's from okay. Meeting meeting. Same here. So, We've yeah. just, uh, I just ran from the other end of the building yeah. to, to find you. So anyway, thanks very much. Yeah. Well, let's talk about climate finance and the World Food Programme. Well, climate finance is important because you need it in order to manage growing climate risk. You That runs on two parallel rails. You have the climate change mitigation dimension, which is a very long-term risk management strategy, making sure that uh, climate change does not go into a runaway scenario and into tipping points. But on the other hand, you have the climate change adaptation conversation. And that for us is the almost more relevant one because at, the po- at this point in time, as we speak, we already have people on the climate front lines. And even adaptation, investing in adaptation right now, which is also a medium-term risk management strategy, does not help them. So you have people on the climate front lines, They're not concerned about the climate in two or three or four years from now. They are going to experience shocks and stresses next season, you know, this year, next month. And this is, we think that there needs to be more attention on these aspects, basically putting 
vulnerability as a very important criterion on how climate finance is allocated. So we are very much supporting also the UNSG's call to have mitigation adaptation financing on 50-50 levels equal on equal footing. And we think that there needs to be progress on the loss and damage dimension of climate finance, which is currently underfunded, underappreciated. Now, I know when there's a humanitarian crisis, cash transfer, so directly giving people cash so that they can buy food is, is one of your strategies. But as you said, this is not adaptation. This is not sustainable in, in the long term. So can you give me an example of some of the ways that you're involved in adaptation programs? So cash transfers are, a, a humanita- are in the humanitarian toolkit. But I think that in times when you see humanitarian needs rise very quickly, you need to also innovate in how you make these cash transfers. For example, climate hazards can be predicted. You can provide these cash transfers before people get hit, and that then reduces the amount of humanitarian aid that you need to throw at the problem afterwards. So I give you an example. In Bangladesh in 2020, uh, about four days before the peak of a flood, WFP, together with the, the SURF, the Central Emergency Relief Fund, has dispersed about $54 per family to around 30,000 families in Bangladesh, four days before the flood. And when you evaluate this kind of, of work, then you see that, number one, the aid reaches people around 100 days earlier than conventional humanitarian aid because it reaches them when the markets are still open, when the, the access roads are still passable. Second, about 36% of the households are better off going no day without food during the flood and the cost of the humanitarian response has reduced by around half. So systems like this are, we believe, an investment that needs to be made now. Not only our own humanitarian system in the UN needs to be able to work like this, but also governments need to be able to have the same systems in place. And that it will then over the long term hopefully bring the the needs curve down and also the amount of humanitarian finance we will require in a rapidly heating world. That was Garnet Lagunda, climate finance expert at the UN's World Food Programme. I'm glad I got to him in the end. Now, Lara, as I said, I have a mission to make insurance interesting. Stay awake. I know you're tired. (laughs) So here's my pitch. Now, many years ago, do you remember Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth? Yes. So that was a really big thing. Basically, Al Gore standing in front of a spreadsheet and explaining why we're all in trouble from yeah. climate change. By the way, Al Gore has been the whole conference here. I've seen it several times. We're going to have to grab Al Gore before we he, leave. He's my buddy now. I'm going to leave that to you. <laughs> You're going to get Al Gore before we leave, and we can talk about this. Anyway, I was lucky. I actually saw him do this on stage at the BBC mm-hmm. years ago. And I remember that I was sitting next to someone from Swiss Re. That's the reinsurance company. So the insurers that insure the insurance companies. Oh, okay. And this guy next to me, he knew everything about climate change. And he was the one who was saying, we've been, we're on this. We've been looking at this for years and something really has to be done. And, and I thought this makes sense because these are the guys that are going to have to pay out next time there's a, there's a huge... A flood or a cyclone or a drought they're the ones who are going to have to pay so it's in their interest to try and get a handle on this and I guess try and fix it but things have not been going as quickly as one might hope 
Peter Bosshart, I heard from him this morning at an event over in the Green Zone. He's from an organisation called Insure Our Future, which wants to stop the insurance industry from insuring fossil fuel companies. And he was presenting their 2021 scorecard. And we learned that although there's a trend towards moving away from fossil fuels, there are still some big players who are still propping them up. Only at the end of last week, AXA was the first major oil or fossil fuel insurer to announce an oil and gas policy. It's been rather underwhelming. Uh, the ambition has been very modest. And even under their new policy, AXA will still be able to ensure 56% of the planned expansion of oil and gas. For now, the insurance industry says they are engaging their oil and gas customers on the clean energy transition. That's a message that we've now heard for five years, and obviously it hasn't had an impact on the oil and gas sector. And so we see this mainly as an effort by the insurance industry to buy themselves some time um, and to avoid taking hard consequences that science expects. That was Peter Bossart you heard from Insure Our Future at an event this morning in the Green Zone. As you heard, they're pretty underwhelmed by how things are going. Well, also on the panel was Joseph Sekulu. He's the head of the Pacific region for 350.org. This is a youth-focused activist group working to end the age of fossil fuels. He'd flown in from Tonga, his home country. He told me that more and more people are beginning to understand why it's important to change the game and stop insurance companies from investing in fossil fuel companies. Tonga is really widespread out within a big mass of water and it's made up of some islands, some low-lying atoll nations, some atoll shoals and so some of the islands within Tonga are, are really affected by seawater rise and saltwater inundation but I guess just like all of the islands in the Pacific it really comes down to the changes in the weather pattern, the warming of the waters, drought even. I think more and more people are becoming aware of it. They've noticed the difference in the changes within the weather, especially the intensity around the cyclones and the way agriculture has. But it's always been really difficult to make that connection between what's happening and the climate crisis. And that's been our job is to try and to break down the science and to really form that understanding. And people really are now starting to see what that's about and make that connection. Now, are you an expert on insurance? I know absolutely nothing about insurance. I know these people need to stop doing what they're doing and ensure things that are more... I know they've been pouring a whole heap of money into extractive projects. That's all I know. But you were speaking on this panel this morning about, about insurance, the insurance industry and climate change. How did you get involved in that? The first time we ever heard about the Adani project was in Fiji when one of the Wangang Jangalingu uh, youth leaders joined us. and She told us about what was happening to her home uh, and how Adani were going to build this mine on their country and they were being forced from it and that really resonated with all of us at that point because she was fighting to protect her home the same way we were and we've been in solidarity with the Wangang Jangalingu people since and we joined the Adani movement because we know we needed to do everything we could not just as in for indigenous solidarity but because this would be the biggest mine in our region and would expel more carbon than our, our whole entire region put together and so we started within the Adani movement started with the banks and then next we moved on to insurers and as we've gone from target to target we've just learned more about the finance flows into the mine and understood the importance of of bringing down that pillar of support for it 
we heard in that panel that I think was it back in the 70s the climate the, the insurance industry was talking about climate change were you surprised by the extent to which oil and gas and um, coal companies are still being insured I am I think even sat within that session I it just completely takes my breath away how easy it is for these huge projects to continue to get insurance but how difficult it is for for families and for communities who are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis to access insurance or to even have any kind of support in the aftermath of a disaster. I, I still don't understand that. It's crazy. And you spoke about the importance of having agency or, or giving people the feeling that they have agency in this process when you're talking about such big organizations like global insurance companies. What did you mean by that? It's such a big thing to try and break down and I've been thinking a lot about agency especially after having come to Glasgow and it's a bit of a sidetrack but the story goes I was in an Uber to the airport to meet one of our colleagues and I had a chance to speak to the Uber driver who was angry that the cop was happening here in Glasgow and he told me that one of the things that they were angry about as Glaswegians or as Scottish people was that they already have a distrust of the government but the COP is happening here in Glasgow, but none of the leaders were going to be present within the negotiations, and they didn't see that representation. And for them, it really is about it's, about... it's about this agency. It's about them as a community, as Scotland, being able to go in here and make their own decisions and present their own voices. And that's what it is for us. That's what the climate crisis is about us. It's about being able to have an understanding of our future and know that we're going to be able to control that and we can plan for thousands of years down the line because our people have existed for thousands of years already on our islands and not be in a position where at the moment where we're worried about losing them within the next century. Joseph Sukulu there from 350.org explaining really uh, why he as a non-expert in insurance decided to get involved and has been demonstrating outside Lloyds of London and speaking to some of the employees there. A mixture of reactions, some of them quite angry that they were doing this demonstration outside the Lloyds of London offices, but also many people just interested in what he had to say and to find out more about the effect that insurance is having on his country and other countries that are under severe threat from climate change. Well, good job. Everything's possible. You can get interested in anything (laughs) if you really try hard, I think. Now, it was an early start for us, wasn't it? This is why we're all looking a bit bleary-eyed. We had a breakfast meeting at the Glasgow City Chambers. It was an event hosted by UNECE, the Economic Commission for... The Economic Commission for for Europe. Part of the UN, that's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were some big names there. It was a chat with Norman Foster and John Kerry, who we found out know each other very well. They hang out in Martha's Vineyard together. Yeah talking about the importance of cities amongst other things and obviously climate change and uh, we managed to grab a couple of words with Norman Foster and he's still passionate about cities after all these years or rather I should say cities that are well run and well designed. How do you make cities greener, safer, quieter? How do you affect change, positive change? We have to relax around zoning. We have to encourage the recycling of obsolete buildings from the past and transform it. We have to make the cities more equitable. So zoning is a clue there. 
and encouraging, encouraging quality, encouraging good design. You know, I've been working with mayors over many decades, and I've seen the power of good leadership. If you look at the power of civic leadership, um, who have the courage and the foresight and the attitude of mind, uh, I think many have got it. And um, and being an optimist, I believe that you know everybody here is here because they want to see change for good. That was the world-renowned architect Norman Foster. We're going to have more on cities next week. There will be a Cities Day. You grabbed a few words with a couple of mayors, I understand. Yes, I grabbed a few words with actually the mayor of Bogota, Colombia, Claudia Lopez. And yeah, we'll be sharing that next week. Look forward to that. So we're going to have some sounds of the day now. First of all, here are the sounds of the Extinction Rebellion demonstration that was taking place this morning. Let them hear. Are you angry yet? Yes! Or will we end up in jail? There is no climate justice without death justice. We have a chance now. History is with us. We need a jubilee for climate. But history is their weapon too. The door is not open, but there's a door now and there used to be a wall. We're still going to have to kick it open. And here are now some very different sounds. These are the sounds of the Living Language Land Project. It's described as a journey through endangered and minority languages that reveal different ways of relating to land and nature. They've been explaining their project to attendees at the COP26 Green Zone and they've allowed me to share some of these sounds with you. So here we go. Calpa Guarmi. Now that is the Quechua language of the Peruvian Andes. I'll try and pronounce Quechua. it. Thank you, Quechua. Did I say Quechua? Quechua. Say it again. Quechua. Quechua. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, so you won't like this either. I'm going to pronounce the word <laughs> Kalpa Wami. Oh, well, that one I don't know. It means women's strength oh, in the language. There you go. And here's another one. Scrogs. That was easier to pronounce. Scrogs. Mm, in the Doric action. language from northeast Scotland, and it means brushwood. Oh. Morva. Morva, Welsh, and Morva means a place of, near or shaped by the sea. And finally, Naporo, Napuro, in the Cuyonon language from the Philippines, and it means a forest that looks like an island within an island. Yes, there is a word for that. There's a word for wow, everything. Wow, that's there? amazing. Yes, that's the Living Language Land Project, and you can just Google those three words together, and they'll come up straight away. And uh, they are at they are at the Green Zone. That's all we have for today. It's been a very long day. Let's see. Yeah, what happens I don't know tomorrow. if we're making sense already because. <laughs> well, we're all running out of energy, which is yes. a shame because tomorrow is Energy Day, so we will have to get our energy back again. We need some coffee. So check out Lara's story on the UN news page about today's big finance commitments. You can also read the climate newsletter, which is going to be covered every day. Uh, big job for you, isn't it? Doing that every day. Yep. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's all worth it. And if you want more, we do, of course, still have on our page the No Denying It podcast, which I can now officially call the hit No Denying It 
podcast because we've had over 1.3 million downloads it shows you just how good it is so oh, we're so happy subscribe 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 if you haven't already yes see you tomorrow